17. We're going to continue our series in Luke today. Um, and I, I want you to know, as we've been moving very slowly through the first few verses here in Luke 17, not because they're more important than any of the other texts we've been moving through, but because the concepts that Jesus addresses here are often quite difficult and foreign to us. And so they seem simple, but we don't practice them very well. And so we've been spending a little bit more time working through them. Let's read that text starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 6, and I'll pray. And he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what it is that your son Jesus said to his disciples, as, report, as recorded by Luke, we, we pray that, that your spirit would work and help us understand what it is he was superintending for your church to hear. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear, and eyes to see. Pray that you would teach us forgiveness. We admit that we struggle with forgiveness, yet it seems to be, if not the defining marker, one of the core markers of who we are as Christians, those who are forgiven and therefore forgive others. Pray that you'd help us through this text and the difficult application of it today. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks, I have addressed Jesus' teaching about our responsibilities to our brothers. First, I addressed our responsibility to our brothers to, at the beginning of verse three, pay attention to yourselves. You say, but isn't that a responsibility of myself? But if you understand the context of that command, that command is given in light of the first two verses. You don't wanna be the one who tempts others into sin. You don't wanna be the one who is a stumbling block, who is a rock in someone's path they trip over, who is a trap so that someone else ends up in sin. You don't want to be that, so you pay attention to yourself because you have a responsibility to your brothers. You are responsible for the sanctification of other people, not just yourself. Now, are they ultimately responsible for their own sanctification? Yes, but we bear responsibility for one another. And so we don't want to cause each other to trip into sin. The second command he gives after pay attention to yourselves is if your brother sins... Rebuke him. In other words, we don't just have, you know, the possible scenario in which we ought to maybe 
if the occasion seems right, talk to, about, to somebody about their sin. We have the responsibility, a command, to rebuke our brother when they're in sin. And I, I talk all about what that looks like. It isn't self-righteous. It is a kind of rebuking that pursues um, them out of love with the desire for reconciliation, not, not the desire to just say your peace so you feel better that you've smacked them down for something they did that you didn't like. But we have a command to rebuke one another. It's our responsibility to speak the truth in love, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, so that we build one another up into maturity in Christ. We have that responsibility. And Jesus gives us a third command or responsibility here that we're going to look at. We look at the third really command here is forgiveness. Look what he says. And if he repents, forgive him. So if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in one day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See, we're commanded to forgive. You understand that forgiveness with a repentant brother is not an option. It's a command. We're commanded to forgive. So what is biblical forgiveness? That becomes the question, doesn't it? Because immediately, as we're commanded to forgive, all these images come into our mind of what forgiveness looks like. We have a culture that is perverse in its understanding of forgiveness. We have a culture that thinks forgiveness is something like sentimentality. I'm commanded to, after you've sinned against me, feel differently about you than I want to feel because of your sin against me. Right? So I just need to change my sentimentality toward you in some way so I feel good about you. And we all know it's a lie, don't we? Because we just don't. When someone offends us, do we feel good about them? We can tell a lie and try to, but that isn't forgiveness. So what is it? We have a culture of politicians who stand before us after they sin against not only usually their spouse and their children, but their constituents and their country because their sin offends all kinds of people who stand in front of us and say to us, I made a mistake, which first of all, you didn't make a mistake You didn't trip into that sin. You sinned. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. It's like I ran over your cat's tail. I'm sorry, right? What does that even mean? I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I want you to forgive me and let me keep leading. Which, i.e., their definition of forgiveness is, is this. Let's pretend it never happened. Let's go on like nothing ever occurred. That becomes their definition of forgiveness. And then if you're not willing to do that, then suddenly you're judgmental and not forgiving, and you guys follow me on this, right? It's a perverse understanding of forgiveness. So what is biblical forgiveness? Well, let let me say this. Forgiveness assumes we owe a debt, I want to define it for you. So let me just start with the definition of forgiveness, and then I want to move into some truths about it. But Forgiveness assumes we owe a debt. If you think about this, when you go to a banker and you get a loan, 
and you now own the, you owe the bank money. And the bank comes along and says to you, we're going to forgive your loan. That means they're no longer going to hold your debt against you. They're going to assume your debt and pay it themselves. Just follow that? They're going to absorb your debt against themselves. That's what a bank does when they offer loan forgiveness. Very rarely do they offer loan forgiveness, but occasionally they have. It's the idea that we've incurred a debt, and, and in this case, a relational debt. Generally not a financial debt, when, what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a relational debt. In some way, I've sinned against you and incurred a debt against you, generally a debt against your trust. You invested trust into me, we had a relationship with one another, and I sinned against you, and now I've incurred a debt. And what forgiveness is, is to absolve someone of their debt by paying the cost yourself. It's what it is. Forgiveness is not sentimentality. It isn't about having warm feelings towards someone. Though they may follow, they don't generally come first. Do you guys hear that? I want you to hear that because it's extremely important in a country that is so, cl- so excited about authenticity that what authenticity means is I'm not actually going to do anything until I feel like it. It isn't particularly authentic, incidentally, to worship the Lord once you feel like it. What happens when you trust the Lord when you don't feel like it? That says something about what you really believe, doesn't it? And it isn't particularly authentic for me to say I forgive you now that I feel warmly toward you. To forgive you is to say to you, you've sinned against me greatly. I feel very badly about you right now. What I feel about you is poor. But because you've come to me asking for forgiveness, I'm going to absorb the debt myself. I'm going to forgive you, and the feelings hopefully will follow over time. But I'm going to move against how I feel right now and do what God asked me to do. Now, sometimes the feelings come first, but often they don't. Forgiveness is the promise, to understand it, it's the promise that begins the process of reconciliation. When I forgive you, I am promising not to hold your sin against you. I am promising not to make you carry the debt for your sin I'm promising not to bring this sin up to others and gossip about you. I'm promising not to dwell on this sin. I am promising to carry the debt for your sin in your place. If I throw the sin back in your face, I am making you pay the debt by carrying the emotional freight of my hurt. This is best explained by the gospel, isn't it? So we want to understand what forgiveness is. Let's understand how God forgave us. I think sometimes we try to disconnect these ideas from the gospel, but the gospel is the clearest picture of where we see forgiveness. What does God do to bring us forgiveness for our sins? See, our sin incurred a debt with God, an infinite debt with him, a debt we could not possibly repay because we are finite beings. We cannot pay our debt with him. And because we cannot pay our debt with him, we are only owed justice, not forgiveness. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. That isn't good news, is it? 
But because of God's great love for us, he sent his son Jesus to pay the debt of our sin. He absorbs the blow of our sin for our sin against himself in the person of Jesus so that he can forgive us. See, this is incredibly important to get a hold of. You want to understand forgiveness, understand how God forgave you. He didn't just wave his magic wand over you and say, it just all goes away. Let's pretend like it didn't happen. God understood that there was a debt between us and him. And he sent his son to pay the debt in our place. He incurred the debt against himself. And that's what we do when we forgive people. We absorb the blow of our sin, of their sin against us. We absorb it ourselves. We don't make them pay for it. How are ways we make them pay for it? So you sinned against me. So I'm going to make you pay for it by gossiping to everybody about your sin against me. So I'm making you pay for it now, right? You sinned against me. So I'm going to make you pay for it by every time something happens, I'm going to throw it back in your face. Remember when you did this? I'm making you pay for it. You sinned against me, so I'm going to make you pay for it by putting relational distance between you and me that, is never, that gap is never going to be closed. I'm not even interested in it. I'm going to turn my face from you, and we're not going to relate to one another anymore because you sinned against me. So I'm going to make you pay for it. And forgiveness is to say, I'm going to promise to you not to do any of those things to you. I'm going to absorb the blow myself. I'm going to go out to people and instead of cursing you to them, I'm going to bless you to them, even though you cursed me. I'm going to go out and instead of putting relational distance between us, I'm going to pursue you in reconciliation. I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to show love and kindness to you, even though that's the opposite of what you showed to me. I'm not going to throw it in your face. We're going to start to rebuild this relationship. That's what forgiveness is. It's taking the debt of your sin upon myself and not making you pay it. It's a promise that I will do that. Thus, when we are forgiving others, we're not taking revenge and making them pay the cost for their debt with us. We're promising to absorb their debt ourselves. That's why it's so hard, isn't it? However, if I promise to forgive you, this does not mean at least two things. You ready for what that does not mean? It does not mean that trust is immediately reestablished. I want to be clear about that. When I promise to forgive you, it does not mean that trust is immediately reestablished. When a politician sins and they say they would like forgiveness, it doesn't mean that we should just let them lead again. They've proven to us they're not trustworthy. And now until they bear fruit in keeping with repentance and see themselves restored, we shouldn't trust them in that position. Forgiveness is not about giving someone instant trust again. I I think people fear that, don't they? If I forgive them, if I make this promise to not make them absorb the cost, but I'm going to absorb it for them, then I instantly have to trust them again. No, you don't. In fact, I would tell you it's quite unwise to do so. 
Forgiveness is a promise to not hold their sin against them any longer. It's not a statement that they've been fully reconciled and restored to their original status. They often need to earn that trust again. If you question this, think of a pastor who commits adultery. If I, as the lead pastor of this church, go and commit adultery, and then I stand before you and I cry, oh, I've sinned, right? You know, you guys have seen it, okay? Please forgive me. You would be absolutely out of your minds to say, well, you can keep being the lead pastor because you asked for forgiveness and we forgive you. We love you, we forgive you so you can stay in your role. No, what you would say is, we love you, we forgive you, but you may not ever have that place of trust with us again. We'll see over time as we work through this and you reestablish trust. Second, forgiveness is not only an initial promise. Here's the second thing it's not. It's not only an initial promise. And this draws from some of what I've just said. Forgiveness is also a process. So I make this promise to you, and then I have this process of working that out. When someone greatly offends another, they may promise to not hold the sin against them, but later do just that. You guys ever had these situations? I'm sure you have, right? I forgive you. A few days later, throw it right back in their face. Right? I forgive you. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. A couple weeks later, throw it right back in their face. And it's this process. And I've got to tell you that if you are someone who is the offender, and you have someone who has offered you forgiveness then you have to be patient with them in the process of learning to forgive. Because it's going, they've made this promise to forgive you, but it is very difficult for them to keep that promise, and they're trying to learn to keep that promise, and when they throw it back in your face and sin against you, which is what they're doing at that point, you have to be patient with them as they learn to go, okay, you know what, I should have done that, I know. But it's a long process of working that out. It doesn't just, some great sins against us don't just immediately get put away. We forgive them, we make a promise, but there's this process of learning to forgive. It is an easy business. I've promised to forgive people and and then I have to continually remind myself of that promise when something reminds me of their offense. And it's not easy. The promise may come quickly, but the process may continue for some time. So forgiveness is a promise to receive the blow of someone against you. It is a promise to not make them pay the debt, but to absorb it yourself. And forgiveness is also a process of learning to live consistently with that promise while rebuilding trust with the offender. And with that definition in mind, I want to look, because that's just the definition. You ready? I want to look at three truths regarding what forgiveness is. Now we're to the meat of the sermon. But you're going, what? This is going to take forever. Well, it's a difficult subject. Okay. <laughs> Let me say this. Here are three truths that we learn about forgiveness. This first one is going to shock you, and I'm going to have to prove it. And it's this. Forgiveness is conditional. What? Forgiveness is conditional. You heard me right. You have every right to challenge me on that claim. I'm going to show you my biblical evidence. Be a good Berean and search it out yourself, and you can come back and talk with me if you disagree. That's fine. But, but I'm going to try to make the case that forgiveness is conditional because I believe that's what Jesus is teaching. 
Why does Jesus make forgiveness conditional? Look at what he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If then is a conditional clause, isn't it? If he repents, then you forgive him. That's the condition. If your brother's one who repents for his sins, then you forgive him. And he goes on to say, and if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He makes forgiveness conditional. See, now psychologists tell us that we ought to forgive people. Just, you know what, just forgive them, forgive them, let it go, forgive them. You need that for your own soul. I understand what they're getting at. I think they're getting at the wrong thing, and we'll get to that in a minute. But that isn't biblical forgiveness when you sort of let it go, and you don't harbor bitterness. That isn't what forgiveness is. It's not harboring bitterness. And we'll deal with that, but... But forgiveness is conditioned on repentance. Jesus is very clear. If they repent, you forgive them. But here comes the question because it ought to inevitably come from you if you've read the Bible. What about the other text where Jesus doesn't say if, you, if they repent, then forgive them? Where he just says forgive them. What about those texts? So let's look at them because we have to understand that scripture interprets scripture. And so we need to walk through some of those texts and say, does the scripture help us understand fully what Jesus means? Keep your hand there in Luke 17 and look at Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six, because here we have a statement about forgiveness that doesn't come anchored with the conditional clause, if then. Though there does seem to be some inherent condition in it. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, as we read the Lord's Prayer, pray then like this. And now I, I want you to follow this because in the Lord's Prayer, there's only one thing we do. Everything else is things we're praying for God to do. This is the one thing that we pray for ourselves to do in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us our debts. Notice that word debts. The use for sin there. As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the idea of forgiving as God has forgiven you. Somebody says, well, it doesn't say anything there about if then. If he repents, then forgive him. But it does say to forgive as God has forgiven you. How has God forgiven you? Well, let's answer the question. Does God ever forgive the unrepentant? Does he ever forgive the unrepentant? The clear answer is no. What does God give to the unrepentant? Justice. He doesn't offer them forgiveness. If you don't buy that, look at Mark chapter 1. This is clear as John the Baptist comes along in Mark chapter one and he tells us the gospel of the kingdom that he's preaching as he's laying the path or the way for the Messiah who is coming. And he says in verse four, it says, Mark says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So you would go out to John to be baptized, and you, as were, you were baptized, it was a baptism of repentance. Baptism and repentance are tied together in every one of these texts. You're repenting for what? The forgiveness of sins. If you go on, Jesus then comes along, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. And what does it say? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you don't repent, you don't receive the forgiveness of sins. You just don't. You have to pay your own debt. Unless you repent of your sins and look to Jesus in faith, you pay your own debt. You get justice. Unbelievers who are here, I can't encourage you enough to feel the weightiness of this text. Apart from repentance and looking to Christ in faith, you will receive justice for your sins. You will pay the debt yourself. So I can't encourage you enough to look to Jesus and repent of your sins and believe So, because in that you find that Jesus paid the debt for your sins so you can be forgiven. You'll either pay them or he will have paid them for you. But there is no forgiveness for the unrepentant. None. But what about when Jesus asked God to forgive those who were persecuting him. Look at Luke chapter 23 because this is one that you ought to have thought of. But wait, I can think of a time that Jesus offered forgiveness to unrepentant people. Look at Luke chapter 23. Chapter 23 and verse 34, Jesus is on the cross. Verse 33, we'll start there. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who? The people crucifying him. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus seems to be offering forgiveness to unrepentant people here, doesn't he? What's happening? Isn't that unconditional forgiveness? Jesus praying that people would be forgiven is a statement of his love and desire to see forgiveness for his enemies. It's what he's doing. He's praying for those who persecute him as Christians are commanded to do. This is the same Jesus who, if you go to the next chapter, taught his apostles the following thing at his resurrection. Look at chapter 24 of Luke and then look at verse 44. Jesus appears in the resurrection, he says, then he said to them, this is Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the whole Old Testament. Those three sections are the way that Jews would think about the Old Testament. That's how they thought about it in those three sections. He's fulfilling that. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what does Jesus teach? 
about his own mission and the gospel. I'm fulfilling all the scriptures that I would suffer and die and raise from the dead so that you would go out and preach to people to repent so they might receive forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is not contradicting himself from Luke 23 to Luke 24. Luke is not so stupid that he does not know when he writes Luke 24 that he just wrote Luke 23. Okay, what's happening there is that we're getting a picture of the heart of Christ on the cross. We're not getting a promise of objective forgiveness for everyone who happens to be out there. In fact, we're being told later how that forgiveness then comes to those whom Jesus is praying that they would be forgiven. It comes through repentance for their sins. And how do we see that? We see that in the, in the book of Acts when Peter stands up and preaches before those who crucified Jesus. And he says to them, you crucified him. And he goes through and teaches them the word. And they are cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And Luke said, or excuse me, Peter says what? Repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all to whom the Lord our God calls. But what about Mark eleven twenty five? Let's look at one other passage that comes up as we're looking at it. I'll try to be somewhat exhaustive here. Mark eleven twenty five. We're given an interesting command by Jesus that seems to completely contradict what I'm saying. Shouldn't be afraid to look at it. Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus is teaching about prayer. If you look there, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. It's not a name it and claim it gospel, just so you know. I don't have time to deal with it. And he goes on in verse 25 and says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespass. So when you're standing there praying, when you're coming to a worship service like this, when you're looking at the Lord's Supper and seeing Christ's forgiveness for you, you're to forgive anyone who has offended you. Say, well, but they didn't have a chance to come and repent before I did that. That's right, they didn't. So what is this talking about? It's very parallel to what's happening to Jesus on the cross when he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's talking about the heart of the believer. You're the person who puts away bitterness. You're the person who has an attitude of love and a desire for reconciliation. You might call it a kind of vertical forgiveness. It's as opposed to a horizontal forgiveness. It's not the forgiveness where I'm absorbing your debt and we're reestablishing reconciliation, but it's a kind of vertical forgiveness where I'm saying, you know what, I'm gonna entrust you to the Lord and I'm not gonna be bitter and I'm gonna trust him with this and I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna be kind to you and I'm gonna hope for the day that you repent and we can begin the process of reconciliation. And then finally, Matthew chapter 18, look there because this is the last one I want to look at in verse 21 through 22 as Peter comes to Jesus and makes his magnanimous, magnanimous offer of forgiveness we find out he wasn't quite as exciting in that as he thought or generous as Jesus is teaching verse 21 
Matthew 18, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? See, that sounds pretty generous, right? Seven times is a lot. How many times have you had to forgive somebody who's offended you seven times? We write people off after one or two times. Three strikes and you're out for sure, right? Like the spiritual life is baseball or something. It's not. Seven times. In other words, what Peter's saying here is is sort of a complete number of times. If you think about the way God created, he created in seven days. It was sort of this number of completion. That sounded very generous to the Jewish mind. And so he offers it. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, you can't even number the number of times you should. He doesn't mean when you get to 491, you should stop. He's saying, you ought to forgive them boundlessly, innumerable times. But Jesus doesn't say anything about repentance there. However, in verse 15 through 17, which precedes that text, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you. Now there's this idea of repentance. You have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. There is an assumption in this text of repentance being connected to forgiveness. In fact, if you look at the parable that immediately follows, then after Peter says this and Jesus gives an answer, he says in verse 23, Jesus saying this, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, that king representing the Lord here, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, so you know 10,000 talents is probably the equivalent today of about $6 billion. It's too much for you to afford, okay? There's no way you're going to pay it back. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and payment to be made. In other words, he's going to get justice. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him. See, repentance is happening here, isn't it? Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of, or at least it looks like repentance, incidentally. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a few months' salary or so. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. We find out that his repentance earlier wasn't too sincere, don't we? So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, throughout this whole passage, what's tied together, and I'll comment on this passage again in a minute, but what's tied together is repentance and forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is always conditioned upon repentance. But all these objections start to pop up. What about anger? Well, you can be angry according to Paul and Ephesians, but in your anger, do not sin. What about bitterness? You should never let a root of bitterness spring up. Never. Bitterness is always a sin. What about hatred? There is a kind of godly hatred, but there's a lot of ungodly hatred. Don't participate in that. Easier said than done. What about the need to be kind to others? We should always be kind to everyone, even at great cost to ourselves. Even people who offend against us and never repent. We should not store bitterness toward them. We should never in our anger toward them sin. We should not have some kind of, feel some kind of right to not be kind to them. We are commanded to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. We should bless them and not persecute them. Not curse them back. That's a command. Let me throw in one application, last one, before moving on. Learn to repent well. We, we often tell our children that I don't want you to hear, I don't, I don't, we don't want to hear you say I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what? I'm sorry that I spilled the milk, I'm sorry that I kicked the cat. What, what are you sorry for? We, we don't care about that. I don't, I don't care that you're sorry. What, what we want to know is, we want, we want to hear you recognize you sinned. How you repent well is you don't, you don't come to your spouse after you've sinned against them greatly and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Listen, your, your spouse is hurting over your sin. That isn't taking responsibility. You come to them and say, I sinned against you in this way. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. You have every right to be hurt. You have every right to be angry. You have every right to throw it in my face. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I'm asking for it. Will you forgive me? That's tough to do. But that's what begins the process of real reconciliation. Second truth about forgiveness, and the last two I'm going to handle quickly so you know. Forgiveness is one of the most fundamental gifts of love which believers offer to others. It is one of the most fundamental gifts of love which believers offer to others. Look back at Luke 17 and verse 4 as Jesus says this. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, you'd be like, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And you look at this and go, this is a very difficult teaching. First of all, why would I believe him if he repented against me seven times in the same, or forget, sinned against me seven times the same day and turned to me seven times saying, I repent? I'm going to say, you're not sincere in your repentance. That's phony. Well, I was looking at pornography. I repent. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will. Okay, good. I'm going to go in the other room and look at it again. I, I did it again. Will you forgive me? Seven times in the same day? You will start to scream from within, that's not repentance, that's not sincere, right? So how could Jesus possibly say this? In fact, what's interesting about this is the command, as he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him, is not in the imperative in in the Greek language, which is the the tense of command. It isn't in the tense of command, it's in the tense of a future indicative. It's a statement of reality about you. You will forgive him. You must forgive him. That is characteristic of who you are as a believer that you are commanded to and you will characteristically be those who forgive, those who repent because God is the one who's forgiven you. 
And you've received that forgiveness for a great debt. Far greater debt than anybody's ever owed to you. And Jesus isn't dumb enough. I, I want to be clear. He's not dumb enough to think true repentance would be found in someone repeating a sin seven times in a day. He isn't. In fact, Jesus talks much, and so does John the Baptist and others, about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. They know that there's such a thing as you repent and there's fruit that comes along with that. So what are they talking about? What's Jesus talking about? What he's saying is that his point is really about our willingness to forgive. Forgiveness here is boundless, immeasurable, total, habitual. The focus here is on the one forgiving, not on the sincerity of the one repenting. See, it's easy for us to go, well, I don't know if their repentance is sincere, but that's not your primary concern. Is there wisdom to employ? Yes, absolutely. If someone is continuously abusing your trust, habitually reoffending, you may need to keep a distance and give them time to let repentance bear good fruit. You may need to seek godly wisdom and how to deal with those kinds of situations, but don't be misled to think that doing all of that means that you don't have to be big-hearted about forgiveness. You do. You ought to be looking forward to reconciliation. The focus here is on our responsibility to forgive. It's speaking of our readiness. If your first question is, but how do I know the repentance is sincere, then your heart is not quick to forgive. If your tendency is not to give the benefit of the doubt, then your heart is not quick to forgive. If you're not coming to prayer or worship and realizing you need to be ready to forgive an offender and build hope for reconciliation with them, then you need to repent yourself. Again, I don't mean if you have been greatly sinned against, you're supposed to have some kind of shift in sentimentality where you feel really good about the other person. I want to be clear about that. I mean you realize that God has forgiven you a great debt. Far greater than anyone has ever committed against you. And that he has pursued the opportunity to do that through sending, to forgive you through sending his son to die. And thus you need to be ready to follow him in the same kind of forgiveness whether you feel like it or not. The Lord's love overflows in unmerited forgiveness. He voluntarily gave his son to forgive us. The Lord was on the cross praying for the forgiveness of those who put him there. We are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Do you understand the point? Our business is not primarily about the genuineness of their repentance. Our business is forgiveness. Cyril of Alexandria, who is a church father, compared forgiveness to the work of a doctor. He said this, if someone comes back sick numerous times, the doctor's business is to keep healing them, not to ask how they keep getting sick. Likewise, if someone repents of sin, our business is to forgive them. Forgiveness is our duty and our privilege because of the gospel. Jesus says if we don't forgive, then we won't be forgiven. Now what's interesting about that is Jesus isn't saying our forgiveness by God is conditioned upon our forgiveness of others. He's making a statement about what true believers are like. We are those who forgive. It's central to who we are because we are those who've been forgiven. 
We're to be marked by it. We're to be known as ministers of reconciliation, as those who've been forgiven much. Therefore, we are those who are big-hearted about forgiving much. If you aren't ready to forgive others, one wonders if the Spirit of God who brought you forgiveness for such a great debt against God is even working in your heart. And I don't mean by that if you don't have a shift in sentimentality to where you feel like forgiving others. But if you're not ready to say, the Lord has forgiven me, so I will obediently forgive others because I owed a much greater debt to him that he paid in his son than anybody owes to me. Even though I don't feel like forgiving them. If you don't understand that vital connection between what the Lord has done for you in Christ and what we therefore as disciples are to do for others, then one wonders, is the Spirit of God at work in you? You might not feel like it. Please don't think I'm saying that. Talking about what you know, you have the responsibility to do because of what the Lord has done for you. Third and last point, forgiveness is hard. And you all are already feeling that, right? This is all hard. This, this stinks. The apostles felt it too. You know they felt it so clearly. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Exclamation point. You know exactly why they said that, don't you? And it's exactly the right request. I have a hard time doing this. Increase my faith, Lord. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. And some people say, well, listen, in, in Matthew he says, you could say to the mountains, move and be planted in the sea. And then this is just like a downgrade of that. It's like a simpler request. That isn't the point. For... for a lot of the rabbis in that day, they would argue that a, a mulberry tree would root for like 600 years. That was their belief, five to 600 years. So the idea that a, a tree that roots for five to 600 years, to be able to say to that tree, be uprooted and go into the sea, that's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible. So Jesus' point is, forgiveness like I'm asking you to do, I recognize it's impossible, I recognize I'm commanding you to do something that you cannot do. And you're making the right request by asking for faith. But you need to understand that it's not that you need so much that you need more faith. It's that you need to have the right object of your faith, which is me. You trust me because I can do all things and I can work in you to bring this about for you. So that you are now able to do something that is impossible in your own strength. So trust me. You know, we had a couple here um, at the church who started coming several months ago, and, and they had divorced. And uh, they were, I, I'm imagining when you divorce, you're pretty done with each other, right? And they came, and I was, pre- at least one of them, and I was preaching on Philemon and Paul's command with regard to the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus for um, reconciliation, And they heard the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit applied it to them, and they repented. And now they're remarried and coming into membership in the church. That's what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. 
I doubt very highly that that's been an easy process or that they just put away everything and pretended like it wasn't there. They had to trust the Lord, ask for lots of faith, and they probably are still having to do that. Because forgiveness is hard. It's impossible apart from help with the Lord. So we need God to give us faith to do this. And as we ask him for more faith, he's sure to remind us that what we really need is him. We need to know and trust our Lord. We need to know that he's sovereignly seeking our good, even in the sins of others against us. We need to trust he will avenge sin. We need to see his love and kindness and forgiveness shown to us at great cost to himself and extend the same to others. May God give us more faith in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth about Jesus and what you did for us in him. You brought us forgiveness we didn't deserve. That you absorbed the cost of our sin yourself and you're not making us pay it. And that we're forgiven. Pray, Father, for those who don't know you, who aren't looking to you at all, that you would bring them to repentance, that they would turn from their sin, from their trust in themselves, and to your son Jesus, knowing that in him is forgiveness of sins, knowing that he absorbed the cost of our sin upon himself. They would look to him and believe and be forgiven, saved, cleansed, declared righteous, adopted as your children. Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would be reminded anew the fact that your son absorbed our debt on himself that you did that of great love for us because you were a big-hearted, loving God who pursued us and brought us forgiveness that we did not merit or deserve, that we would press into you once again and that we would then be big-hearted, forgiving people, people who seek reconciliation, who pursue it, who are marked by it. Father, I pray that you would do that work in us. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.